Well, good morning again, church. I want to just add a little note to what Ellie was sharing earlier in terms of some of the the literature and some of the little glow tracks and handouts. We have those here um, at at the church. And so if you would like them, we're not necessarily asking you to go out and buy these things. We can provide those. Uh, So I just just want you to be aware of that. Um, we We have some on that front table and if what you're looking for isn't out there, just ask, ask myself, ask an elder, and we can go back into the room and, and grab you one. And another thing, too, um, I, I know that he had mentioned, you know, seeing maybe, maybe homeless people um, or, or somebody else that might be in need. But I want to expand that just a little bit more because I, I feel like there is a, a certain group of people that we might often overlook and that is any individual that works in the food service industry. I, I think that we all know um, somebody that works in the food service industry, and maybe we even have that restaurant or that place that we go to on a regular basis, and we've gotten to know these people. Um, there is a, a little Chinese restaurant right outside our apartment complex, and I've been going there for over five years now, and I've gotten to know, uh, know the guy that, that owns the place, Ming, um, and he, he's around my age, and we always just, you know, kind of chit-chat and talk whenever I'm in there. And the last time that I was in there, he was, I could just tell he was having a hard time. And he was sharing with me just some of the difficult things that he's been going through lately there at the restaurant. And I told Sarah about it. And Sarah had this brilliant idea of why don't we get him a card? And so we did. We just got him a, a little thank you card and wrote in it and personalized it, put a little gift card in there and took it to him. And it was, he didn't know how to react. And he said, this is the first time that I've ever received a gift card in America. And this is the first time that somebody has actually thanked me for, you know, the the food that I make. And so you, you never know what people are going through and what they have experienced or haven't experienced. And to many of us, just a simple card or a simple thank you, it, it might seem very basic, not a big deal. But to others, it can be a massive deal. It could be a huge thing. So I just want to back up everything that Pastor Ellie said and implore you to be prayerfully considering as you go through this Sabbath day, thinking about how can I be a blessing to somebody in this community this coming week? All right, so we're going to pick up part two of our sermon series Genesis of the Good News, and, and we're, we're looking at, at some of the early parts of Jesus' ministry there in Galilee, and I want to talk or start this morning by just talking a little bit about our Bible. In our Bible, there are four Gospels, right? The first four books in the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is where we go when we want to see the narratives, the story of Jesus and his earthly ministry while he was here about 2,000 years ago. And each of these four Gospels, you might think like, well, it's basically the same story. You know, if I know, if I read Matthew, why do I need to read the other three? 
Um, but I think that if you go into the New Testament, if you go into the Gospels with that mindset, you, you might be a little mistaken there because each of these four Gospels has a very unique way in presenting Jesus and especially the start of his earthly ministry. There are, the, these are four distinct voices that offer four distinct theological agendas. And so Matthew, he introduces Jesus's public ministry with him preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Jesus is, is presented as the new Moses going up on a new mountain and presenting the, this, this new Torah. And essentially the message that, that Matthew is trying to convey with this is that the time has come for Israel to be renewed. He's not just talking about, you know, the, the uh, traditional, those that were birthed into Israel. Paul then expands upon that, right? And, and we're all part of spiritual Israel as, as, as Christians. And then Luke, he introduces Jesus by showing Jesus preach in the synagogue in Nazareth. And he's, he's announcing the jubilee of the year of God's favor. That's how he's first presented there. He, and, and he takes this message from Isaiah 61. And it's very interesting because Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, but then he edits the part at the end about the day of vengeance. That's, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. But he, he, he goes on and, and he preaches about how God has, has, has found favor and is extending mercy to the world. So Luke, he, he presents Jesus as, as first announcing God's gracious jubilee that is for the entire world. So it's for everyone. John introduces Jesus' public ministry by turning water into wine at that wedding in Cana. And, and it's, it's almost as if the mindset of John is that the, me, the message from him is the time has come. This is now the moment for the feast of God. And you're all invited. Everybody is invited. And Jesus is the one that sort of opens the door to that. He's saying, hey, come, come, come on in through me. I'm going to hold the door open for you. But today, we're going to focus on the gospel according to Mark. Mark. Mark begins with Jesus in Capernaum, and he's preaching in the synagogue, but then he casts out a demon right there in the synagogue. And the message is that it's time for Satan's kingdom to be overthrown, to be overtaken by the kingdom of God. That's Mark's message there how he presents Jesus. And so, as I mentioned last week, Mark, more than any other gospel writer, he pays more attention to Jesus casting out demons. And as you read through the gospel of Mark, you'll see that it doesn't just open with this story, but there are numerous instances of Jesus casting out demons. It's a prominent theme in Mark's gospel. And in fact, really, the, the, his entire gospel narrative is set as an ongoing confrontation of Jesus to the kingdom of Satan. Now, in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, we see that in the synagogue of Capernaum, the Son of God goes forth to war. The Son of God goes forth to war. And 
before we look at the actual confrontation here, his, his actual face-to-face battle with the powers of darkness, I want to look at an, an ancient prophecy, once again from the book of Isaiah. And it's actually a prophetic poem that was written years and years and years before Jesus ever came on the scene, but it was prophesying what the Son of God's mission was going to be on this earth. And so this is from Isaiah 49, verses 24 and 25, and it says, Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you, and I will save your children. Beautiful message. And to put these verses in layman's terms, Isaiah, in this prophecy, says that the Son of God is going forth to war and he will rescue those who are held captive by mighty and tyrannical rulers. Later, once Jesus' ministry begins, he said this, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. So one way of understanding Jesus's ministry is that we, as the human race, are held captive in the castle of Satan. And I I gather that's probably quite unpleasant. That's not a fun place to be. So, dear friends, I want you to use your holy imagination with me and just imagine yourself as a prisoner in the deep, dark dungeon of the castle of Satan. Satan here is considered as the strong man, as this verse implies. But then Jesus comes along, and Jesus is one who is stronger than the strong man. He's stronger than the strong man. He storms the castle. He overpowers Satan. And he sets us all free. This is good news, right? This is the gospel. This is the kingdom of God. All right, so let's let's dig in a little bit deeper into this thing. Mark, Mark 1, 21, it starts off. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. 
And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. All right, so we're in Capernaum. We're in this lovely little fishing village right on the Sea of Galilee. And it's Sabbath, so Jesus, as his custom was, he goes into the synagogue. But today, not just to listen, today to preach and to preach good news. And so he goes in there, he's preaching, he's announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, and he's doing so with authority, but then something happens. Something happens. A man, we are told, with an unclean spirit, a spirit that wasn't right, raises up. And this, this man was, was so damaged by, he was so distorted by some unclean spirit that darkness had usurped his very personality. We could say this man was not in his right mind. He was not himself. And it reminds me of this Soren Kierkegaard quote, where he says, now by the help of God, I shall become myself. And this is so true. You know, we as humans, we face a lot of dangers in this life. And you can lose yourself, and you can become distorted. You can have darkness usurp the very center of your personality to the point where you become someone that you were never meant to be. That's what we're up against. That's the kind of stuff that we face in this life. But when we're in that kind of place, It's in those moments that we need this type of good news message, that there is hope, that we can be saved, that we can be salvaged, that we can be restored, that we can be rescued. We need that sort of good news. We need the help of God to become who we really are, who we were meant to be. Well, here in this story from Mark, This man, he's damaged by a distorted spirit. His personality has been usurped. But what's really interesting here is that, presumably, this man has been coming to the synagogue for Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. No problem, no issue. He can sit there and he can listen to the scribes. He can listen to the Pharisees as they just go on and on with their Torah exegesis. And it didn't bother this man. It didn't bother this spirit. But then Jesus shows up, and he starts proclaiming the kingdom of God. He tells of a new kingdom that has overthrown the kingdom of darkness, set the captives free. And all of a sudden, in that moment, hearing that message, that man, that unclean spirit, can no longer slumber through the worship service there in that synagogue. It becomes very disturbed by this good news. Can't hold it in anymore. And it, it, it's, it's saying, wait a second, hold on. Who do you think you are, Jesus? What are you doing here? Have you come here to destroy me? And I can imagine Jesus just sort of pausing and you know, maybe reflecting over his mission statement and saying, oh, yeah, there it is right there. That's exactly what I've come here to do. That's exactly 
what I'm going to do. I have come to destroy the works of the devil. And 1 John 3, 8 makes it pretty clear. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. For this purpose, dear friends, the Son of God goes forth to war, that he might destroy the works of the devil, the evil one, darkness. And so Jesus cast that unclean spirit out of the man, and the spirit obeyed, and the man was set free. And the people, they were amazed, right? They realized that Jesus had a special kind of authority that the scribes and the priests, they didn't have. They didn't have that kind of authority. And it's no surprise that Jesus' fame spread from there on out. This is something new. This is something exciting. This is something that offers hope. Just think about it. Imagine yourself as these people witnessing this. There is somebody out there who can now free us from the things that want to come into our lives and ruin our soul, ruin who we are, take us over. That's called good news. That's good news. Let me also say that because Jesus is the one who comes and does the rescuing here, that I refuse to believe that anyone is all bad, pure evil, or too far gone. I refuse to believe that. No one is ever too far gone when Jesus is on the scene, right? Who's got the power here? Who do we believe is more powerful? Now, I admit that there are some folks that might challenge that belief from time to time, but I stick to it nevertheless because Jesus is the one who has come to set us free. And if he's involved, no one is truly ever beyond redemption. And thus, when the Son of God goes forth to war, he visits no harm on human beings. Do you, do you catch that? The book of Exodus says that God is a man of war. But we see God through Jesus, right? Jesus over and over through his ministry, hey, I've come here to show you the Father. There might be some different ideas, some different teachings, some different theologies about who God is and what God is about. So I'm here to set the record straight. I'm here to show you what God is like. Jesus did not harm anyone in his ministry. He was constantly challenged. And he constantly overthrew the works of the devil. But in the process, he never harmed or killed anyone. He didn't do it. And don't give me that business about Jesus. He went into the temple and he beat people with a whip. That, that didn't happen. That's not what the Bible says. Only John, only John in his gospel mentions the whip. And if you read it carefully in the Koine Greek and you interpret what it's actually saying, it says that he used the whip to drive out the animals. He used the whip to drive out the cattle and the sheep. He didn't use it to beat anyone. 
We've got to stop making Jesus into some sort of divine Rambo. That's not a pretty picture. That doesn't draw people in and make them feel warm and fuzzy inside. The Son of God does not wage war upon evil through the ways and means of evil. Because if we wage war against evil through the ways and means of evil, what wins? Evil. Evil still wins. And maybe some of you are wondering about certain depictions in the Bible, specifically in the book of Revelation. First, we must remember that Revelation is a symbolic book, right? Not meant to be taken literally. Revelation sets forth in creative symbols to show the apocalyptic and eschatological triumph of Christ. Christ triumphing in the end of days, the last days of this world's history. It's a subversive work of literature that uses symbols of violence. Yes, you will find those there, but it subversively reappropriates them to reveal a nonviolent warrior. That warrior's name is Jesus. And he, when he arrives on the scene in Revelation 19, he's depicted this way. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now I know that 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 word, that terminology, war, might be confusing to some of us, but Ephesians 6 reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? But against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Jesus isn't coming to war against his children. He's not coming to war against humanity. He's coming to do war with the spirits of darkness, demonic forces in high places. But pastor, what about all that blood he's covered in? Good question. Let's look at verse 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. The question we must ask here is, whose blood is this? Whose blood has his robe been dipped in? Ephesians 1 tells us that Christ shed his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9 reminds us that Christ covers our sins with his own blood. Romans 5 encourages us in the fact that we are justified by the shed blood of Jesus. And then Jesus himself sets the record straight in Matthew 26 when he told his disciples that his blood was the New Testament, the new covenant for the remission of sins. So Jesus is depicted in Revelation 19, 13 as wearing a robe dipped in his own blood, which represents the end of Satan's kingdom and the forgiveness of sins. But pastor, what about the big sword? What about that big sword that Jesus has? Once again, that is a good question. Let's look at verse 15. Now out of his mouth comes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. Now did you notice here that the sword isn't in his hand like some typical earthly warrior? It comes out of his mouth. And in earlier, in this same book, in Revelation chapter one, The same mouth sword was described as being sharp and two-edged. 
As I mentioned, the book of Revelation is a book of symbols. And the symbols that are used in Revelation, they come from elsewhere in the Bible. And if this sword isn't a metal instrument of death, then what is it? Luckily, we find our answer in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The sword coming out of Jesus' mouth in Revelation is a symbol of his words, his preaching, his teachings. And I think that if we're all honest with ourselves here, I hope that we can all confirm that each one of us have been slayed by the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. The people we used to be, the person we used to look at in the mirror has been slain and now we've been brought back into a newness of life. You see, sometimes we can get confused about what the, what the kingdom of God is really about. But we aren't alone. <laughs> the disciples got confused. Over and over and over they got confused. And allow me to read a few verses from Mark chapter 10. I'm gonna read verses 32 through 40. Now they were on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the 12 aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's a pretty bold (laughs) proclamation there from them. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom is prepared. Now, I mentioned last week that the crucifixion was actually Jesus's coronation as king. And during his coronation, who was on his right and his left? When he was on that cross, those criminals that were being crucified with him, there's a symbolic meaning here. And that's why Jesus says to James and John, you guys don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. They thought they were asking for, for uh, positions of prominence. But what they were actually asking for was to be crucified with Jesus and to partake of the cup of woe. So yes, the Son of God goes forth to war. 
But it isn't about waging war in the conventional way that we humans often think of. Instead, it's waged through co-suffering love and being willing to lay down our lives for others because the kingdom of God is without violence. Without violence. Could you imagine going to heaven and having to fight wars? <laughs> Getting into fist fights with your neighbor? Having to worry about if you've got a gun or a knife or a sword to keep you safe when it gets dark? We persuade as Christians, as the kingdom of God, we persuade with love, witness, word, spirit, reason, rhetoric, and sometimes, if it's needed, by martyrdom. But we never persuade by violence. It's not going to bring people into the kingdom of God. The weapons of our warfare, as Paul reminds us, are not carnal. They aren't guns, they aren't tanks, they aren't bombs. They're divine power from God to pull down spiritual strongholds. Those are our weapons of warfare. But now, I want to return to this good news. Remember, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who sets us free from all that would take over our lives and ruin our very souls. You know, I believe that it's fair to say, in one way or another, that we all struggle with our own demons. We all struggle. There is darkness that often creeps toward us, and it varies from person to person what that darkness might be. We all face struggles and temptations. And there are things out there that desire to usurp our very personality and make us into who we were never meant to be. But the good news that I'm preaching is the fact that Jesus is our liberator, sent from heaven to attack our captor, defeat him, and set us free. That's the good news that I'm preaching. It's the son of God's purpose to destroy the works of the devil. That's what he's about. And he wants to destroy the works of the devil in your life and in mine. If this is a message you need to hear, if this is something that you need to experience, all you've got to do is say those words that Peter called out when he was sinking below the waves. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. Put your hand out. And his hand that was scarred for you will grab a hold of yours and pull you up. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful ways. You know, it doesn't matter what the name of your personal demon is. Whether it's drugs, pride, alcohol, violence, greed, unhealthy sex, hatred, overindulgence, Jesus is here to storm the castle, defeat whatever demon that is, and set you free. Jesus comes into your life, and he tells those demons to be quiet. And I think we all know about those voices 
that are constantly repeating in our head, constantly vying for our attention, the voices that tell us how bad we are, the the voices that tell us how far gone we are, the voices that tell us that there's no hope for us. Jesus wants to come into your life and tell those voices, you have no authority here. And he's going to cast any unclean thing from you. So the only question for you is, will you let him? Will you let him? And once you do, you'll be free to not only join the kingdom of God, but to advance it. Dear friends, if this is good news, then I just ask you that you would go forth from this place and go share it. We all know people that are battling their own personal demons. Maybe they're some of the same demons that we've faced in our past. And a lot of people have no hope. They have no knowledge that they can be set free. And God has given us the blessed opportunity to share that good news with them. So next week for part three, we will look at the fact that we not only need a liberator, but that we also need a healer. We need a healer. But for now, I'm going to invite Ellie forward to stand at the foot of the steps. He's our elder in charge for today. And after the benediction, you who wish can be dismissed. But if there's anybody here that has a specific burden, a specific need, come talk to me. Come talk to Ellie. We would love to listen and we would love to lift your petition up to the throne of God. And also, maybe, just maybe, there is someone here who hasn't yet given their heart to Jesus. But after hearing this good news, they want to make a commitment, and they want to say, I want to go into the kingdom of God, and I want to show everybody that by getting baptized. If that is you, dear friend, please, please don't leave this place before you come talk to me, before you come talk to Ellie. Let us pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by both what we have done and what we have left undone. We haven't loved you with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves, and for that, we are truly sorry. We humbly repent our sins, and we are so thankful for Jesus that we may be forgiven and may delight in your will and walk in your ways. May our lives bring glory and honor to your name. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you that you came to set us free. Help us to continually represent your kingdom well, dear God, and we ask this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen.